My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the fifth official episode of The Riley Rant. If you haven't done so already, please check out our last episode entitled Critical and Political, a discussion with Khalid Love. That was an exciting episode as it was my first episode with an external guest. And in the episode, we touched on the 2016 election, the current political climate, and we tried to figure out where we go from here. So please check that out. I would highly encourage you to do so. Initial feedback from listeners was that it was very informative and insightful. And that's the goal of these episodes. I want to bring topics like race, politics, society, and culture, topics that are so taboo. I want to bring them into our dialogue and our conversation because I'm tired of us shying away from them. I'm tired of us beating around the bush. I'm tired of us trying to avoid these conversations out of fear of saying the wrong things, out of fear of sounding ignorant, out of fear of messing up. I think that it's important for us to have those those conversations, and I'm glad that we were able to do so, and I hope that you were able to take something from it. This week, however, I want to shift focus and shine some light on the professional. We doubled down on the political in the last two episodes, and I want to give some attention, some love, and some affection to the professional landscape uh, with the professional rant. And so if you've been following us closely, you know that we took a brief hiatus uh, from publishing content last week. And that's because I'm a strong believer that you have to stay in your lane. I realized last Sunday our usual time slot was being occupied by one of the biggest sports events in our country, the Super Bowl. And so realizing that I couldn't directly compete with that, I didn't have a couple million dollars to put out an advertisement in the Super Bowl, I realized it may be best to hold off instead of doing a podcast that week to release a blog in the middle of the week. Um, And so I did that. And that blog was centered on your vision statement that you have for your career and your life. And that was actually a nice segue and a nice foundation for this week's episode, our professional rant, where we're focusing on 2020 vision and creating a clear vision statement, creating a clear vision for our life Uh, to create meaning and purpose, and to achieve our professional and personal goals. And so with that, let's dive into this week's episode. When thinking about vision, it's a very touchy topic for me. In 2011, the summer after my senior year, I was interning in my hometown of Philadelphia, and my coworkers had sort of an intervention. They had called me out because they saw that I was looking at my computer screen um, in a way that looked uncomfortable. My eyes were so close to the screen. I was trying to figure out what I was reading. I was having a hard time deciphering some of the words, and it was a lot of strain on my eyes. And so people called me out and they said, Paul, are you okay? Like, do you need to get your eyes checked out? And I was in denial for about a week or two. But after they called me out on that, I began to realize, wow, I am having trouble seeing some of these words, or I have to, like, move in very close to the screen to pick up any of the the words or the letters. And so I decided to visit the doctor, my optometrist, and I found out that I have a rare eye disease, a rare astigmatism 
uh, called keratoconus. And keratoconus is basically an astigmatism where your cornea is sort of bulging out and turning into a cone. And it sounds scarier worse than it actually is, but it's essentially your cornea, which is the tissue that protects your eye. It sits right on top of your eyeball, right on top of your iris, and it basically acts as a window shield. So when light's coming in, it allows you to see what's in front of you. Um, it actually allows you to better gauge your surroundings. And so what was happening in my situation was that cornea, which is supposed to rest flatly against your iris, flatly on your eyeball, it was actually starting to bulge out and create a, a minor gap between my eyeball and my cornea, which meant that when light came in, it would bounce in every which direction because there was a, a tiny gap that everything that I would see would sort of be very blurry. So going back to the analogy with the window shield, it was almost as if I was looking through a window shield where rain was pouring down. There was no window shield wipers to wipe the water away from the shield to create a clear view. And so I was walking around with this sort of fuzzy, blurry sort of depiction of my surroundings. And it got so bad to the point where I had to recently, uh, as recently as last year, get a corneal transplant um, in order to offset the effects of the astigmatism and hopefully to improve my vision. But the purpose of that story is that when it comes to vision, in the literal sense, it's going to be very difficult for me without the help of uh, maybe LASIK or without the help of context to attain 2020 vision in a literal sense. So that's really, whether through genetics or external factors, that's something that I can't control with respect to vision. But one thing that I can control is the vision that I have for my life and the vision that I have for my career. So though my eyes are messed up, I have this astigmatism that's out of my control, there are still other elements of my vision that I can control, and that's vision with respect to my life and how I'm going to live it. And so when thinking about the professional landscape and trying to create a vision statement for ourselves, trying to provide more clarity around our lives, it's important to first take a clear assessment of the professional landscape that we live in today taking a clear view of the realities that certain groups in our society are facing as they try to live out their dreams, as they try to navigate the professional terrain. And the one way that we do this is by looking at the experiences of, of our fellow neighbors. So with respect to gender, we know that women earn 77 cents for every dollar a man makes. That's true for white women. When you factor in black women, that number drops to 64 cents. And when you drop even further down to Hispanic women, you see that that sits at 54 cents for every dollar a man makes. And this all comes from the American Association of University Women, and it highlights that we have a very real problem with the wage gap in America. On top of this wage gap, we also see from the perspective of gender that women often have faced challenges when navigating the professional landscape. So at a young age, when you see women who are very assertive, who are very confident, they're often you know, labeled as bossy or as a brat. This follows them into the boardroom where their ambition, their confidence, and their determination can at times be seen as a threat. It can at times be seen as intimidating. And it can at times be viewed in a negative light. In addition, and this is not only true for women, but for others, but a lot of research around women also highlight the fact that the imposter syndrome is a very real phenomenon. And the, and the imposter syndrome is centered on this 
difficulty with internalizing your accomplishments. So you could be a very successful woman, maybe a director or a vice president or a CEO, and you may also begin to think or believe that you're not worthy of that position and that you're someone's going to expose you as a fraud that you have they made a mistake when they hired you that type of imposter syndrome while it affects everyone there are studies that show that this plays a part in how women at times can view themselves in the professional landscape and so with respect to gender when you're looking at that 2020 vision it's clear that there are some obstacles in the way but then moving on to class we see from an article from the Huffington Post for example which highlights that poorer students are still struggling to graduate you know, from four-year college and degree programs. And even when you look at the top schools, you see that they're overrepresented by the top 1% of society. But then beyond that, when you have universities and colleges trying to offset those financial realities and disparities, you still see those students in these environments struggling to find their way, feeling alienated, and really experiencing that divide that may not be spoken, but that very real and apparent divide with respect to class in the you know college and university landscape, which many may argue is the foundation for achieving sort of opportunity and success in the professional landscape. So with respect to gender, we've seen how the wage gap and internalized perceptions of self can impact realizing your vision. With class, we see how that can also impact whether or not you're able to complete the degree program and whether or not you're able to have a meaningful experience in overcoming some of the alienation that you may experience from not being able to relate with the majority of the students in your class or at your school. Beyond that, we see conversations around unconscious bias. I know Google has recently rolled out um, programming and content around trying to combat unconscious bias. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, unconscious bias is essentially a bias that we're not aware of. It's what allows us to make quick snap judgments and assessments about people. And it's often influenced by our background, by our personal experiences, and by our environment. But unconscious bias is so real because it can materialize in the professional landscape. So if you're a recruiter, for example, sourcing candidates reviewing resumes, there are studies that show that unconscious bias can have an impact on whose resume you view, whose resume you push on to the next round for maybe a phone screen or on-site interviews, and who gets hired in the process. With respect to hiring managers, it can play out in determining who gets a promotion, who gets the pay increase. That's how unconscious bias manifests itself in the working world. And it's not just this sort of stated belief, it's actually backed up by two uh, studies that were produced um, over the last few years. So the first one was by Devah Pager, and she basically tries to assess how race plays out in the professional landscape. And she does this by carefully selecting test applicants who have equivalent resumes And she gets them to apply for low-level jobs at hundreds of employers. And what she finds is that for a black man, if you have a criminal conviction, that's very hard to overcome in the professional landscape. But the most telling finding from our study was that um, if you are a white felon, you have a higher likelihood of being called back for a job than if you are a black person. So in a sense, Black felons are severely um, impacted negatively in the professional landscape, 
But her study actually revealed that white felons are actually much more successful at getting called back or getting reached out to for the opportunity when compared to black individuals without a criminal record. So again, talking about those obstacles in the professional landscape, another study, this one done by Marion Bertrand, basically looks at how unconscious bias can manifest when looking at resumes. And the study's entitled, Are Emily and Greg More Employable Than Lakeisha and Jamal? And she performs a similar sort of process where she is trying to measure racial discrimination in, in the labor market. And she sends out fictitious resumes to help wanted ads in Boston and Chicago newspapers. To manipulate the perception of race, she assigns the resumes either a very black-sounding name or a very white-sounding name from a culture perspective. And the results show that there is significant discrimination against African-American names and that white names actually receive 50% more callbacks for interviews than those with the black-sounding names. Again, um, beyond gender, beyond class, beyond race, we also see generational obstacles where the millennials, my generation, are the most educated in America's history, but they're also the most indebted. And so how do you reconcile with the fact that we have people who are trying to pursue educational opportunities who are then crippled with debt and are unable to find viable job prospects to service that debt and to also go after the work that their degree was supposed to make it easier for them to to get into. And so these are all the different obstacles that people are facing in the professional landscape. And I thought that before diving into the rant, it's important to step back, look at our 2020 vision of the professional landscape, and provide some clarity on what exactly is happening. And this goes back to our first uh, professional rant, which was focused on the best career advice I've ever received, and how, for me, career advice can often be so frustrating and so annoying because they either respond to your question about how they became successful with this idea of I worked hard and now I'm here, or you have a predicament where people are giving advice without leveraging the data and the statistics to show that, yeah, your advice may be great, but how does it apply to people of different races, of different genders, of different socioeconomic statuses who don't have the luxury maybe of taking all of your advice at face value. So if you're trying to tell me to quit my job and travel the world, how is that going to be relatable to me if I am a millennial crippled by debt or if it's already been proven difficult for me to lock down a job when you have to factor in unconscious bias maybe preventing me from even getting a phone interview. So those are great things to keep in mind uh, when talking about bias and unconscious bias in particular. Harvard actually has an implicit bias test. If you're interested, I would encourage you to check out. It's implicit.harvard.edu. Again, it's implicit.harvard.edu. And it basically allows you to go through different simulations and it assesses what you have a bias towards. And there are different categories around ability, around race, around gender, um, a, a plethora of topics. But it's a great way for you to see where your bias, you know, sort of is leaning towards. And I think that's so important because when we talk about bias and discrimination and things of that sort, I think people often tense up and they say, oh, I'm not racist or I'm not sexist or I'm not homophobic or I'm not misogynistic. And I think that these implicit bias tests, these simulations done by Harvard, which anyone can sort of try out, I think are going to be very valuable in helping you to understand what bias do you hold uh, that you may not even realize 
you're holding, and how does that impact how you navigate the professional landscape? So I say all that to say we have to have 2020 vision and a clear perspective on the current obstacles in our landscape. But moving on to our rant, I think that um, in spite of those obstacles, which we had to acknowledge, that still shouldn't stop us um, from creating a vision statement for our lives. That shouldn't hinder us from trying to create a vision statement for how we're going to live out our life, how we're going to create meaning, fulfillment, and purpose in our lives. And I wanted to revisit this topic of vision and passion uh, because in my last episode focused on the professional rant entitled The Best Career Advice, we leveraged Kyle Newport's book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And in that book, he talks about the dangers of following your passion and provides another framework of building skills, gaining capital, and then leveraging that capital to do the things that you love later down the road, later in life. And I left that episode really um, inspired by the advice because I think that it's so important and that we need to hear it. And I think that it's a great perspective that's often not included in the, the narrative around career advice and, and following your dreams, which I felt he did a great job of addressing and incorporating and helping to inform others of. Uh, but I left that episode feeling like, yeah, I get it. We shouldn't follow our passion, but there has to be another way for us to guide and direct our lives. It can't just simply be find some work, get good at it, leverage that skill set to cash out and do what you love. There has to be more than just that to help center and guide us. And that you know, forced me to think about my own life and my own perspective to see if there were ways in which we could create a vision instead of a passion moving forward. When you think about passion, it's often so narrow that it rarely allows room for flexibility. So in my example, I have a passion and a love for government and politics. And my passion may be leading me to believe that the only way in which I'll be successful at achieving this passion, achieving this goal, is if I am in Congress, is if I'm an elected official working on policy. From a passion perspective, that's really the only way I can see myself living out my true calling, my true dream. And as you can see with such a narrow focus, that can lead to so much stress because if I'm not ever in a position where I'm directly working towards becoming an elected official, I will ultimately become stressed out because I'm not on the right path. What am I doing with my life? How did I get so off course? That it only leads to you becoming more stressed, more rattled, and and, and less focused on what's in front of you and the experience you're undergoing at the current moment. And so in order to help myself alleviate some of the stress of placing such high stakes on Congress and politics as my passion, I said, let me step back and look at a vision statement that can provide more room for flexibility. And the way in which I came about creating this vision statement um, actually was inspired by a workshop that I attended at work where a woman came in and walked us through determining our why, determining our vision. And what we basically did, and I would encourage you all to do this exercise, we basically, we got 10, or we got 20, I should say, index cards. And in about three minutes, she basically said, write down the first 20 words that come to mind. Write them down on each index card. And so we write those down. After doing that, she says, okay, from that list, narrow down those 20 you know, cards to 10. And that was sort of hard. We're like, okay. 
Then she says, okay, from those 10 cards, narrow them down to your top five. And this is where it became, okay, this is getting even more difficult. And then she said, from the top five, choose one. And I think that was the most difficult for many of the people in the workshop uh, because, you know, you rarely give thought to how you describe yourself. And it's often very difficult to describe yourself in one word. But people ultimately came around to choosing their one card. And the card that was left standing for me was around passion. That was the word that I chose out of all the other 19 to describe me. And and that was my primary word that I would use to describe myself, passionate. Being passionate about issues, passionate about helping others, passionate about helping the underdog. And so with this one word from this exercise, she then um, encouraged us and prompted us to write a vision statement that embodies this primary word that describes us. And what's also important to note is that those other four words that were in your top five, you can also leverage those as footstools to create that vision statement. Um, And so for me, that top word was passion, and it was centered around helping other people. And so that prompted me to create the following vision statement. It reads as follows. To develop a comprehensive understanding of the most pressing issues and how they impact the oft-forgotten and oft-ignored in society, which will then allow me to ruthlessly defend and advocate on their behalf at the highest levels of government and business. I'm going to repeat that because I know I threw a lot at you. My vision statement, which is centered on passion, reads as follows. To develop a comprehensive understanding of the most pressing issues and how they impact the oft-forgotten and oft-ignored in society, which would then allow me to ruthlessly defend and advocate on their behalf at the highest levels of government and business. And this took a while for me to craft. So as you begin to think about your vision statement, know that it's going to take maybe a couple of days to really figure out. But this was so, I guess, liberating for me because it took this passion for politics, which is very singular, very narrow and focused to you have to get into elective office or you have to work for a politician or else you failed and you're unsuccessful. It took that high stakes, high stress mentality and moved it from passion to vision where I had this vision statement that could be accomplished in a number of ways. And so after creating the vision statement, I began to think, okay, how can I live this out in my professional life from a professional perspective? And I came up with some professions that nicely aligned to this vision statement. Some of the big ones were law. So being a lawyer was a great way to live out that passion. Being a legislative assistant or a director. So working for a politician and helping to craft legislation was a way in which I could impact um, and ruthlessly defend on behalf of these individuals at the highest level of government. But then thinking about the private sector, maybe working in government relations, where you're working with the government, building partnerships, with the private sector to help bring perspectives and voices that are all forgotten to the forefront of society. I then began to think, okay, what about journalism? Maybe being a news anchor or being a journalist, you know, where I'm out there reporting on issues that deserve attention and shining a light on that. And then I said, well, what about the private sector, you know, working at a company? And I said, wow, I'm, I'm in a sales role now. Sales is a great way to live out this vision where you're building up skills and learning how to build rapport how to tell a story, how to get buy-in from others. Or what about a marketing role where your job is to brand a topic or issue? So if I'm trying to ruthlessly defend people, I have to find a way to market and position those topics and issues in a way that grabs people's attention, that compels them to act and to get involved. 
And I thought, what about HR? You know, I've had some experience in HR. And again, I saw the ways in which my HR um, experience aligns with this vision of advocating on behalf of employees and trying to enhance their experience. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that when I moved from this passion mindset to the vision mindset, I opened up the doors to opportunity. I gave myself more leeway in determining how I can live out this vision. And I moved my focus from finding the right job or the right work to actually doing things that are all directly aligned to my vision statement. And the beauty of taking this approach is that your vision statement allows for diverse experiences. And from these diverse potential professions, you can pick up and build data points about yourself and provide more clarity around what you like and what you dislike. So for example, in my vision statement, I could be a public policy fellow, for example, or I could be a sales representative. And those are two seemingly different professions, but each of them are aligned to my vision and each of them will allow me to better understand myself. So for example, in the public policy position, I can learn, oh, I actually dislike how slow government moves. I need to be in a role that will allow me to have an impact at a faster rate. That's a key learning. Or in my sales role, which is another profession that's aligned to my vision, I can realize, oh, I actually do like being on the front lines. I actually do like and can withstand rejection when I'm selling a product that I believe that I believe in or when I'm supporting a cause that I'm passionate about. Again, those learnings are going to be so helpful to me and help me to determine where I go and what my next direction will be. And that's the beauty of a vision statement is that it affords you flexibility. It affords you to determine what you like and what you don't like. And even when you end up in a position where you find out that something on your list is not a fit, you don't have to look at it as a defeat, a loss, or a waste of time. Instead, I would encourage you to look at it as a lesson learned, as something that you won't repeat in the future, and as something that will help you to determine what your next step should be. And so it is for these reasons that I hope you all will create a vision statement. Move away from the passion, which is so singular and focused, and start creating a vision for your life that can encompass so many different professions and so many different experiences. And so I'm confident that if you leverage the framework with the 20 index cards, narrow them down to 10, narrow them down to five, choose one, from that one word, create a vision statement, from that vision statement, see what professions or experiences or opportunities are aligned to that, and then begin to figure out how you're going to tackle that list, how you're going to start to build those data points to learn more about yourself. And I would encourage you, if and when you create this vision statement, to please share it with me, because I think it's so important for us to start guiding, directing, and centering our lives. And the best way to do that is to start leveraging that 2020 vision, that clarity to help us get to where we need to be so that 20, 30, 40 years from now, we're not looking back with regret. We're actually looking at ourselves in the mirror. We're smiling because we confidently created and determined a vision for our life and we saw it come to pass. We saw it come to fruition. That's the power of what we can do with the vision statement and that's what's at stake if we don't double down on creating a direction and the vision for our life. And I'll say lastly, it's okay if you're not sure about what exactly you want to do. It's more important to start writing down these things and getting a sense of where you want to go and where you think you should be. That, in my mind, is the most important thing. So with this week, I hope that you will leverage 2020 vision to create a, a statement for your professional life so that you can achieve your goals 
and live a life that's full of meaning and purpose. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Riley Rant, this professional rant. I hope that you enjoyed it. With Valentine's Day coming up, we will double down next week on a personal rant and discuss dating and relationships. So again, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that you're excited about what we have in store next week with the personal rant. And as always, remember that if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's the Riley Rant.